When a picture tells a thousand words, it makes sense that we show due caution to ensure that the picture we create portrays exactly what we wish for it to say and is not misconstrued. It makes equal sense that we should exercise good judgment not to misconstrue the theme of our story when a single frame may misrepresent a moment. We all choose to subscribe to that, right? Within the melting pot of youthful exuberance and conviction, sometimes wisdom and context go wanting while compassion and empathy are misplaced instead of aligned to the situation at large. While it can be more pleasant to look back with rose-coloured glasses at previous performances, hindsight provides retrospective understanding that maybe our glasses were not always so rosy. Who among us have experienced this? Who among us has accepted that given the chance, we would have done it differently? And even more than this, who among us would do this in the public eye? Between reporters, jurists, politicians and the public, we look to understand the conjecture and countenance as we continue to look at the journalism and justice on this, the next episode of Just Lawful. Adelaide is the perfect place to set a horror story. You know why all those films and books are always set in sleepy conservative towns? Because sleepy conservative towns are where those things happen. Exorcism, omens, shining, poltergeists, Adelaide, Zamitaville, or Salem, and things here go bump in the night. Welcome again to Just Lawful, where things do indeed go bump in the night. My name is Daniel Panozzo, and I am once again joined by my co-host, Sean Fuster. Thanks, Daniel. Welcome back, everyone. Indeed, welcome back. And a small bone to pick with you before we kick off, Sean, which I'm sure we'll touch on. You left even myself hanging last time. Normally, that's my job. We're still waiting for this definition of a new uh, journalist, but we'll get to that. Before we do, thank you once again to everyone who has listened uh, either on the broadcast with 5AA or you've caught this on the podcast on either iTunes or Spotify. As always, we would greatly appreciate and strongly recommend you running over to those platforms, rating, reviewing, subscribing, all those things for us, providing us some feedback as always. Um it is fair to say, Sean, that I made a joke about you leaving us on a bit of a, a tender hook this time on our last episode. We will get to the definition of what a journalist, the evolution of that definition is. At the end of the last episode, though, you took us to a point where you talked about the, the NEMA case that we're using as our case study for this with uh, journalism and justice. And you said it was turning very much from Justice Solon giving his... Uh, very poignant and direct commentary around the position he was left in. And it was starting to move outside of the courtroom and we're now starting to get politics involved in this. And you said resignations and a whole heap of other things were starting to come with this. So I guess from here, where do we pick up? Where I want to pick up is to backtrack just slightly because I want to say this based on some of the feedback we've had in the gap between these episodes. At no stage was I saying looking back at my past younger self and the hot-headed decisions that I made, that this wasn't a story. Yeah. What I'm saying is that I actually missed the story. Okay. The story shouldn't have been rich kid gets $100 good behavior bond for shooting blue-collar worker in the eye. The story should have been rich kid gets $100 good behavior bond for shooting blue-collar worker in the eye because of flawed plea bargaining system. Right. 
that's what I missed as a young reporter. Okay. I only saw that overall satellite view classist battle. I didn't see the more important legal point that was actually driving this. And that's why I feel, looking back, that I was handing out, you know, the pitchforks and lighting the torches. Because I was inciting people to be upset about something that was an important thing. A victim had been denied justice. A victim had been denied a voice in the court process. All the things that we have talked about on this show, all the things that I've spent my career working on, but for the wrong reason. Yeah, right. I hadn't gone far enough. I had taken the baking tray out of the oven before everything was fully cooked. Okay. I hadn't realised what the actual injustice in this situation was. So, if I'm reading that right, what you're saying is you wanted to incite riot and hand out pitchforks. <laughs> you just handed them to the wrong people and we were targeting the wrong the, the wrong t- uh, village we were supposed to burn down. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that the reason that it turned into pitchforks and torches was because I didn't go that extra step. Well, we're going to disagree. We're going to have to agree to disagree on that clearly, Sean. But no, it is interesting. I, I think that makes uh, it's really interesting hearing you say that because when I hear this story, and certainly you're telling of it, and if I cast my mind not knowing anything different, that really does sound like the story. Rich kid gets off with a $100 bond for shooting someone, right? That's what that story sounds like. And I don't know necessarily myself or, or our listeners or who else might have been, well, why is that? And I think it's that, that why is that which is the point. The, four, the five pillars of journalism are supposed to be who, what, why, where, and when. Yeah. Well, the version that I reported back then, I'd given you the who, yes. the what, the where, yeah. the when but not the why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The why had been left to because judges are out of touch, because he's rich, because he's got good lawyers. I'd almost left the why out Mm. so that everybody could pour in what they needed to pour in. Yeah. And to move away from your joke for a minute, that's why it turned into pitchforks and torches because that essential element was missing. There are lots of stories I've reported in the years since that have been just as unjust. We've dealt with them on this show. But I always tell you the why. Yeah. If you ever wonder why I sit here and belabor the points of the law, why this show is about just versus lawful, the DNA of it can be traced back to this experience here. Because this is where I learned leaving that essential element out of a court report leads to things like the- Premier of the state, Mike Rand, getting involved, Mm. directing the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Paul Rove QC, to appeal the decision. Okay. Paul Rove saying, I have no intention of appealing the decision. It was my plea bargain. I drafted it. I authored it. That's my right as the DPP. Yeah. The Premier calling in the Solicitor General, Chris Caracas, now the Chief Justice of South Australia, to say, well, if the DPP won't do it, you appeal it, and while you're appealing it, let's investigate whether this should have happened in the first place. Okay. You have Jeffrey Williams issuing press releases as a member of the public, as a victim of crime, trying to get people to understand what he's going through, what his family are going through. You've got the Nima family, effectively prisoners in their own mansion right now. They can't go anywhere without TV crews following them, without mm. cameras assailing them on all sides. This has turned into a grand mal seizure of a situation, and in amongst all that, you've still got Justice Sulin who's saying, well, nobody's listened to what I was trying to tell you in the first place. Mm. Now, Mr. Caracas, now Justice Caracas, is the one who gets to the bottom of all that. Okay. He's the one who looks through everything and says, okay, this was the result of a plea bargain. Clearly, we need to appeal on the grounds that the plea bargain should never have been struck. Okay. That leads to a different question, though. If the DPP, as we've talked about on this show, is an independent body 
from the state government, how can the DPP be directed by the government to appeal? Well, I was wondering that as you're saying that and and, as I'm following along the parts I pick up as I go, I was thinking that if that's an independent body, how can they work under the direction of parliament if they're not beholden to parliament? That's right. So you've got two arguments running at the same time. Mm. You've got Mr. Caracas saying this needs to be overturned Mm. and we're going to challenge it in the Supreme Court and the Court of Criminal Appeal. You've got the Defence Council coming back and saying, well, look, we're not going to accept that because this is a plea bargain, brokered in good faith with the DPP. Mm. You don't have the right to tell the DPP what to do. Mm. In an unprecedented situation, it's decided both of those things are going to be heard at once. Hang on, hang on. How's that? I'm, I'm, how does that work? Like, I'm just going to shock out that. How does yeah. that work? Because I'm trying to think that through. We're going to gather together five judges to sit as a full panel of the Court of Criminal Appeal. Okay. And in the same two-day hearing, we're going to hear why Mr. Caracas says the sentence should be overturned and what it should be changed to. Yes. And the defence's response to that. And we're also going to hear why the defence says this plea bargain should be left alone and the DPP's got no right to be bossed around by the government. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Caracas coming back saying this is why we can tell the DPP what to do. Okay. And then the court will come back with one global decision that will either be sentence overturned because you can boss the DPP around or sentence left alone because you can't boss the DPP around. Okay. So, knowing that, and that's an interesting space will we'll need to understand the outcome of that while that's going on i'm sure young um head full of steam reporter sean fuster is champion the bit here so did you obviously knew this was going to occur you heard that the dpp was going to challenge this it was going to go to be look at the court of appeals all sides wanted to talk to me at this point right okay and that's my point what were you doing at this point what were you reporting on how were you i guess looking at this and by extension, at this stage, was anything Justice Sullen saying to you sitting in the back of your mind, or was that still? And 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 that's not to that's not to sound funny or to to point a finger at you. Was that at play at all, or did that still come much much later? It still hadn't even occurred to me. Right, it still hadn't sunk in. And look, looking back, I'm ashamed to say that, but I'm confident enough to own that. I, I was not understanding that point. I, I don't think ashamed is, is necessary. I think it's inexperience, maybe. Oh, and, absolutely. And, and certainly more exposure, more context, more understanding as time goes on. As you said yourself, you can now see what you couldn't see. You certainly wouldn't act the same way necessarily. You choose a different path. So this was the story that made me as a journalist. Right. I look back and I realise that this is the point where premiers would call me at seven o'clock in the morning because they wanted to say something or victims of crime were prepared to speak to me or, you know, the Nima family themselves were prepared to speak to me off the record. I was spending less and less time in the courtroom and more time going around to all these various stakeholders, getting these phone calls, drafting these stories, seeing court documents before they were filed. You know, we're going to challenge this. Well, we're going to say that. Here's the piece of paperwork that we're going to file. We're going to file it in the next 15 minutes. You can report it immediately after that. And, of course, we're in that emerging digital media landscape as well. Up to this point in my career, I was used to coming last. Mm. You know, radio would break the story, television would have it at 6 p.m., and then the paper would come the next day with whatever was left. Mm. But as the advertiser website starts rolling, as, you know, there's this ability to put out email newsletters and things like that, 
I'm starting to break these stories during the day. I'm watching television journalists and radio journalists run after what I've said. I'm reporting what the Premier is going to say in a press conference before the press conference is held because the Premier is giving me the speech beforehand. It's, It's heady. It's intoxicating. To a young journalist, you're seeing your reputation rise. You're having people respond to what you're saying. You feel like you're doing the right thing by everybody, giving them a voice. You know, holding the government to accountability. Is this, you know, your position? Going back to the Defence Council, what do you say? I thought I was servicing all needs. I thought I was doing all those things that we talked about on the first episode, what a journalist was supposed to do, but I was doing it faster than everybody else in this emerging digital landscape. It uh, certainly does sound like a, a situation, a position of, not convenience, the right place at the right time with yeah. all of this emergence coming around, as you said, in a different landscape to be able to talk about break news and, and disseminate this information. It's also really interesting for me to hear what it sounds like is kind of the birth of the rock star career of young Sean Fuster. You know, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that because I do want to ask you shortly, how... How did you handle that? How did you go with that? Because you are a young pup on the scene, a year and a half from you know, or thereabouts in to this new career within courts, and suddenly not only the new kid on the block, you're the new kid on the block breaking all the hit records and having everyone wanting to actually come and speak to you. That's got to be a very big dichotomy and shift in that mindset of those around you. Not just you, but your peers and contemporaries must be seeing this new almost rising star coming to the fore. Sean, I, I jokingly talked about there, you know, the, the emergence of the young rock star journalist Sean Fuster. I mean, as you said in your own words, this really was kind of the, the story that broke you as a journalist and, and really brought you to the fore in that sense. And I talked about the exposure. Obviously, there's a lot of, you said yourself, really important people in your mind of what you do coming to you direct and talking to you and wanting to speak to you off the record about things. And I did make the point, I'm interested how, I guess, that, how did you handle that personally? And I guess, Beyond that, how was that taken by some of your peers and contemporaries where this is probably a little bit unusual in that space? So certainly someone with as limited tenure as yourself at that point. That's probably the first part I want to start with. Yeah, so for the kid who'd grown up since the age of 10 wanting to be the chief court reporter for the advertiser, this was the dream made manifest. Mm. You know, I'm on my way. I'm I'm not that long into court career and already I've landed a big one. It's an important one. It, there's a victim who needs to be spoken for here. Everything that I am about is all, f- you know, formed fully in this yeah. case. I had the good fortune of an editor by the name of Mel Mansell who got right behind me and a lot of mentors like people like Kim Tilbrook and also Nigel Hunt who did what they needed to do at that point and just pulled me aside and said something that will be very familiar to you and very familiar to all the listeners. I know you're excited, kid. But pump the brakes. Yeah. Just stop and think for a minute. And every time you get really excited about what you've got on hand, pump the brakes and ask why. Why do you have that? Sure. Why are they giving you this? Why are they calling you? What do they want from you? And so, where a lot of newsrooms and organizations could have reacted with jealousy, Mm. with all sorts of interpersonal strife and trauma, Mm. the ties are rallied around me and said, all right, congratulations, you've got the tiger by the tail. Let us help you get onto its back. Okay. Let us help you understand exactly what you've unleashed here. I was also very fortunate that the reporter who'd originally been covering the NEMA case, Simone Reid, who you know, helped organise us for being part of um, Raising the Bar last year, graciously handed across her notes and said, here, this is what you need to know. This is the background. 
I was very well cared for, very well looked after. Had I not been, the tiger would have eaten me. Sure. Well and truly. Yeah. Because things were spiraling further and further out of control beyond the walls of the advertiser. The Mm. way that this was being covered was very much that American current affairs style Fox News coverage. Mm. I remember that there was an infamous current affairs program on one of the networks and it used to show Paul Rofe. The DPP mm-hmm. coming out of the TAB betting office, lighting a cigarette, things like that, questioning and casting aspersions on his ability to do the job. And my grandmother, my father's mother, actually rang me one night and she said, oh, you're writing about Paul Rofe, aren't you? And I said, yes, Grandma. I mean, oh, I, I know he's a bad man. Well, how do you know that, Grandma? Every time he comes on the television, they play that awful music, so I know he's a bad man. Yeah. Well, that, that, kind, of <laughs> that kind of typifies it right there. We know that some of the best movies have great scores and they always write music for that, which is exactly that, which goes to that point I was saying before, you know, that the concept of be careful of the image you portray when a picture tells a thousand words because right there, your grandmother just saw an image and it was the music behind that which immediately made her think one way or another. It's really interesting that your grandmother was the one who's saying that to you because we've seen that so many times and it is a very, very delicate line that the media has a huge responsibility and therefore journalism does as well to portray that by giving the facts without distorting those one way or the other. Is that fair to say? Very fair to say. So let's talk about images for a minute and let's talk about evidence. Mm. Obviously, if this case is going to come back on and be heard in an appeal, we're going to have to have evidence because Mm. part of the issue to begin with with Justice Sulan was you haven't given me the evidence. So Mm. the Court of Appeal says, all right, if we're going to hear this appeal... Jeffrey Williams has to come and give evidence, and mm-hmm. Paul Nima has to come and give evidence. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen in the first go-round. Sure. So, the court is actually going to make up its mind based on the fullness of the case. And, of course, that's the case because we had a plea bargain. That's right. Right. So, no fate accompli this time. No, we did the workings backstage. Sure. We're going to have it all out on the table okay. for everyone to see. It's a two-day hearing. On the way in or the way out of court on one of those two days, Paul Nima is walking in his designer suit, looking really great, and he reaches up and he scratches his right eye, just mm-hmm. underneath his right eye with a single finger. And the photographer that I was with at the time blazed away. Multiple shots, just held down the shutter mm-hmm. button. As you go through the photos later, there's one photograph where effectively Paul's fingers are in the shape of a finger gun. Mm. And so he's pointing a finger gun at his own right eye. Or so that image would have us believe. It is what you think of as a perfect news photo. Right. Because there in the encapsulation in a single image is everything that you need to know about this story. Mm. Right there. Perfect front page image. And of course it was the front page. Yeah. Paul's coming in or out of giving his evidence. There he is, finger gun to the eye. Right there. The whole story. Single image. Um, Right there. That goes straight back to... Your grandmother's depiction of that is giving the music to the the image of making us think a certain thing right there, right? Well, is it? I mean, it's a fact that he did that. Yes. You know, it is a moment in time. It's not a doctored photo. It's not a manipulated photo. It's just fortune. Absolute fortune from a news perspective. Mm. There is nothing wrong with using that photo, but how do you use that photo 
to convey what's going on accurately rather than in a way that you don't want. In that sense, and I'll put it in the spot, can you remember the headline that ran with that photo? I was trying to remember. I even went sure. looking for okay. the, for the uh, front page scan in the sure. Tizer archives. I couldn't find it. Because but that's it, my database skills. No, though. but that's okay. But that would be very interesting and intriguing as well. Because as you say, you're right. Not a doctored photo. Totally get that. Image is, is as was, as is. No dramas there. Certainly the connotation that we could hope people may draw from that may certainly make them think one way or another. And I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that we wanted to do the most uh, scurrilous thing around that. Certainly, if that got some imagery and people talking about that, it wouldn't be the worst thing for paper sales, let's be honest. Well, the great thing about it was it actually ran on a day where Paul gave his evidence in court, mm. described what had happened, described what he was feeling when those girls rang, mm-hmm. when, why he grabbed the gun, the fact that from his perspective, the gun just went off. He didn't remember cocking it. Mm-hmm. He didn't remember loading it. He didn't know if it was loaded, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. He was on the stand for a fair while and he was very compelling Okay. His evidence. Sure. Really compelling to the point that when Chris Caracas, now Chief Justice, picked up the gun and put it on the bench in front of the witness box, Nima physically recoiled. Mm. He said, I don't want to go near it. I, I don't even want to look at that thing. I just, I don't want to look at it. Yeah. It was a really, really strong piece of testimony. Okay. Versus Jeffrey Williams, the news agent who got up and when he gave his evidence, it was very much, I don't know. I don't remember. I won't say. I can't say, mm. monosyllabic monotone. Sure. We actually ran in that same edition of the Tizer a full page that was their evidence side by side. Okay. So that the public could read it unvarnished. Okay. You know, no Sean interpolating, telling no. you what the great quotes are. Here it is, bang. Mm-hmm. It was interesting how quickly public opinion started to change. Right. After all these months of Nima and his family being the worst of the worst, the upper crust that got away with everything, people are reading this going, oh, wait, he was an idiot. He was a hot-headed kid who did something in the spur of the moment and made a dumb choice. Yeah. Which is what this was. Absolutely. It was never malicious. No. But instead of it being, this kid's running around with a gun and shooting people and, oh, this is terrible, it's, oh, wait, hang on, there's the context that's been missing from the very beginning. Sure. And some people started to go, well, I still don't like the outcome of the sentence. Yeah. But maybe a plea bargain was the right call. Okay. Because neither man fully remembers exactly what happened. Right. Both men's recollections are scarred by trauma and injury in the case of Mr. Williams mm-hmm. and by panic and, you know, aggression and adrenaline in Paul's case. Sure. So, if we've got, as you said, I guess the quote of public opinion starting to shift maybe on how they saw the Nima family and Paul himself, and perhaps thinking maybe a plea bargain was not, wasn't necessarily incorrect in that sense, were we seeing a shift within politics, within government, within the legal fraternity? Were we seeing a shift there? The legal fraternity was circling the wagons trying to protect the integrity of the process. Okay. And the South Australian Bar Association, which is a professional peak body of all the barristers, decided to intervene in this mega hearing mm. as what they call amicus curiae. Okay. Latin for friend of the court. Right. You know, we're here to make sure that, you know, the law is being respected. The Premier, Mike Rand, responded, To me, amicus curiae means enemies of the victims, enemies of the public. My message to lawyers is this. I accuse you of being a club. I have been criticised for doing so. But if there ever was an example of a club in action trying to defend its own interests, then here we have got it. The question I would ask the legal fraternity is this. 
When are you going to stand up for the victims of crime? When are you going to be on the public's side rather than the lawyer's side? Best thing to do in politics is to create a common enemy. The Bar Association backed out of the entire hearing. Oh. Rand was very quiet afterwards because he'd won the battle he needed to win. Okay. The court of public opinion was now firmly back in the court that he wanted it to be in. Sure. So, the lawyers had to back away from it. Mm. There was an incident where one of the judges was asked to recuse themselves from the five-member bench Mm -hmm. by defence counsel because they seemed to be prejudged in their determination of the plea bargain being inappropriate. Okay. That was well and truly knocked down. That caused a bit of a stir within court. How dare you suggest a judge is prejudged? Well, I'd like to know how, based on what? Based on some of the questions they were asking during the conversation, during the cross-examination, during the arguendo, defence just got the opinion, oh, you've already decided my client should go to jail. We don't want you on this bench. You've already made up your mind. Hmm. Okay, interesting. It was very feisty and it was very public it was very nasty it was very raw okay very open wound stuff at the end of the two-day hearing it was made abundantly clear to all concerned that the penalty was going to be overturned okay it was just a matter of how long paul nemo was going to go to jail for not whether or not he was going to jail because in the minds of these five judges yes the dpp can be directed by the government okay that needs to happen Right. So, even though we are an independent body, we've determined that, well, these five judges have determined that the parliament can direct the DPP on their behalf to then intervene in these sorts of situations. That's right. And we've now got to a point where, so we've decided that the verdict will be overturned, Paul Nimble will go to jail, it's just going to be a case of for how long for? November 18, 2003. 18 months on from the moment that Paul Nemer fired his grandfather's gun through the back of Jeffrey Williams' news agency mm-hmm. van. Nemer is jailed for four years and nine months with a 21-month non-parole period to be served immediately. Okay. That's the ruling of the court. Sure. Jeffrey Williams says, I thank Premier Rand for voicing and acting upon the concerns of the public. It has been the public's interest that has fueled this case and it is likely the appeal would never have been instigated without this attention. Having been heard and a just outcome being reached, I feel relieved that this matter is finally over, and I am looking forward to the future. Premier Rand's comment was simply, Justice has been done. Paul Nemer wrote a letter to the advertiser from his prison cell a couple of months later, talking about what it was like being in there, Mm -hmm. what he'd learned, the fact that he'd shared cell blocks with people like the Bodies in the Barrels killers. Yeah, right. He said, My case was not dealt with like any other, as the media felt it was necessary to involve my family and their socio-economic status. All I had asked for was to be heard as any other person. Mm. Chris Caracas went on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Mike Rann ran a successful election campaign as a law and order premier. Mm -hmm. Paul Rofe lost his job as the DPP. Okay. Replaced by Stephen Polaris, who you remember from our episode on the death cult, the doomsday cult. Yes. Nima was released in August 2005. By 2008, he had to leave SA permanently because the media was still chasing him around everywhere he went. There was allegations at one point that he'd got a speeding ticket, and that led to a big storm out the front of court of media waiting for Nima to turn up for his speeding ticket. In February of 2009, a prosecutor in a completely unrelated case made a comment that a lot of the legislation written by the RAND government was, quote, rushed through, not thought through. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the media reported this comment. The Premier directed, at least the Premier's office, directed the prosecutor to return to court the following day and unreservedly retract the comment. And then the Premier's staffers sent emails and made phone calls to all media outlets insisting that that retraction be published. Okay. There's a couple of points there I'm I'm, I'm a little concerned about. So now... Okay, so the government is now directing prosecutors to what they can and can't say in that sense. Yes. Demanding apologies. Yes. And then also demanding those outlets that can publicise those apologies that they must then publicise them. That's right. That feels very um, grubby to me. The balance had shifted too far the other way. Okay. Immediately, any time we spoke as reporters to someone out the front of court, if they didn't like the sentence, they would be, I'm off to the Premier's office. Mm. I'm sure Mr. Rand was inundated with complaints from victims of crime, which is ironic when you think about the people we've talked about on this show who can't get a hearing. Sure. In the immediate aftermath of Nima, it seemed like there was a take a ticket and wait your turn in line at the Premier's office for yeah. people who wanted to complain about the justice system. Okay. Now, again, it's an artificial situation. The people that could complain to the Premier and what the Premier had fought about was the plea bargain that had been brokered yes. unjustly as far as it had been determined. Okay. And even the High Court ruled on that because okay. Nemus Council took the whole plea bargain issue, the whole directing the DPP issue to the High Court. Okay. The High Court dismissed it in 10 minutes. Right. Just threw, all but threw it out. Basically said, look, this isn't even worth our time having this conversation. Of course, one government organisation can direct another. Move on. Right. It was it was a you know fart in the wind. Okay. So this situation has been artificially created, and that artificial creation of people thinking that injustice equals premier intervention for any sentence I don't like yes. has been created all the way back by that young pup and that I for one hundred dollar headline that he thought was correct mm-hmm. because I had missed the point that Justice Sulin was trying to make. Yeah. The injustice wasn't the one hundred dollar good behaviour bond. The injustice was the circumstances that allowed a $100 good behaviour bond to be the condign punishment for the offence. Sure. You pointed it out last episode. The evidence links to the offence, links to the sentence. Mm. You can only sentence based on the evidence. What was the proper sentence for Paul Nemer? 21 months inside. Once we heard the evidence, that became clear. Mm. The plea bargain prevented that evidence from being heard, and some mug journalist missed that point. Right. And so created a situation where everyone thought the problem was the mathematical outcome, not the workings that got to it. Yeah, okay. So, question for you. We know that NEMA stands up as a case that really highlighted that from your perspective and your understanding. Are there any others that you can think of in that sense where, I guess- the media has maybe missed that point or it's been utilised. We've gone for the, the, the surface level, if you like, rather than the underlying. Not within the realm of courts, Okay, I'm going to hopefully say. Although, I guess there are elements of the Cy Walsh case sure. that come back to that. We talk about the fact that the context of the football and yes. who they were completely overwhelmed everything sure. else. That's probably the other one that I can think of. From a personal perspective, though... This was definitely the awakening I needed because as the years unfolded, I'd watch what Justice Sulin did 
in other cases. And there were other things Justice Sulin did that I vehemently disagreed with, mm-hmm. and we butted heads over as well. It'd be unfair and unjust for me to say that His Honour and I finally found an accord. We at least got to the point where we could be civil to one another. Sure. And again, I'm not blaming him for that. No. I'm blaming me for that. In his final case, His Honour had to hand down a ruling about whether or not a recidivist sex offender was going to be allowed back out into the community. Mm-hmm. And His Honour made a ruling that was effectively, I've had prosecution and defence come to me and agree back of house that this is the way he should be released. So, I'm going to have to do it. Okay. He was back in that same situation again as his very last case. Right. He wrote a judgment very similar to the NEMA judgment, talking about the fact that he had had lost the ability to hear the evidence because of the way it had been presented to him. And it meant that this potentially dangerous man was going to be living out in the community. I remember vividly that His Honour read portions of his judgment aloud. And as he's reading them, he's looking directly at me. Mm. And I realised in that moment, we are here again. And His Honour is really worried we are about to end up here again. Sure. And I reported that completely differently. Okay. I made the story all about the fact that the system for releasing recidivist sex offenders was so broken that this eminent judge in his final appearance at the bench had no choice but to let a dangerous man go. Yeah, right. The resulting public outcry about that, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, was completely different Mm -hmm. and completely in keeping with what the story was actually about. There were no pitchforks and torches because sure. people were directed at the proper problem. Yeah. Interesting. What About what year was that, that last case? Oh, goodness. Top uh, of your head? COVID's kind of ruined my ability to recall years. <laughs> Look, within the last decade, it, it was certainly sure. within the mid to late 2010s. Okay. So, in this 10 years. So, that's an interesting point because I think that that's a really good cap at that point to go. So, when we start this- you said the name case read about 2003 thereabouts. Is that right? Yeah, 2001 when it happened, 2003 sure. by the time it all wrapped okay, up. Okay, so that's when you were covering that in there. Fast forward probably 10, 12 years at that point. At least. So, there shows, I guess, the evolution of your understanding of looking at the why piece and what does that really mean and why is it happening and why is it occurring? It's probably, well, if you follow the, the show so far from what we've done, it's probably not as much surprising as it is disappointing that we find these cyclical situations happening and this judge coming back to the same thing, almost at this point, looking at you going, Sean, nod, nod, wink, wink, are you on board this time where we're at? So it's it was almost kind of fitting, I think, in that sense, if that makes Oh, very fitting. And it was bizarre how well that worked. It's one of those, you know, if you told it as a story, people would say it was too pat and too twee. But it was, you know, as I'm walking out the door, Justice Sulin, you know, I have to look at Sean Fuster in the eye again and say, hello, McFly. McFly, are you getting it? Is there anyone home? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's interesting. So, I guess that's a really good indication of how that evolution happens. It is a very stark reminder to how important media coverage is and the media coverage we're doing today. And we talked about, you said before, in the Cy Walsh case, there's a couple of parts around that. A, the access to information you had. B, your choice of whether or not you did anything with that. Also, the unfortunate decision by some other media outlets on what they did do with that and therefore the decision that the court had to make around restricting everything back from that. I think that really highlights in that case as well Mind you, that's a, that's a situation where we're talking quite a bit in the future, and we had those social media outlets at that point. 
I would be very, very intrigued to understand what perhaps we would have seen from a social media response had that been available when the NEMA case was going on. What might that feedback have looked like? Yeah, that would have been absolutely terrifying. I just, <laughs> I think of some of the Twitter responses that we get off the cuff from people who have heard a portion of an episode or have decided they know what's on an episode rather than our dedicated listeners. Mm. I just can't even think what sort of things you would have seen about the Nemas at that time. It would have been reprehensible. Yeah. About all concerned. It would have been a lot more than my grandmother talking about the bad music on the current affairs show. That's sure, for sure. Absolutely. But I mean, that, that highlights just the point there around the impact and effect that these social media outlets have had. And it goes back to what we talked about right at the start of, of the last episode about what is journalism, who can call themselves a journalist, why, and by what standards and, I guess, rules are they going to allow themselves to, I guess, lean into it and be dictated to? Because as we've said, and I said last episode, it was a little bit grey for me around what rules were in place. For I understand from a court perspective, there are things we can and can't. And there's certainly a piece around this that we'll talk about uh, as this evolves, the legality piece that you are, I guess, beholden to from a reporting perspective. And we know there's elements. We've touched them in the past and they, they come back through. And some of them that we will really sort of investigate in the future, it's going to be some, the suppression piece. We know that there is a number of those and how and what that looks like. For me, I guess, I guess NEMA aside, and we've talked about that, there is probably a couple of things, and, and shortly I want to touch on, just really briefly, that we, we did see not too long ago, we saw a case where social media was almost, I guess, the impetus or the catalyst for what we saw would then play out in court and how that would look back. And that I mean, I'm intrigued to get your perspective on that. You and I have talked about it off air. I'm interested, I guess, from that perspective to see what you think about that and how that plays out in a modern day sitting. One of the most prestigious and lucrative events in the South Australian annual calendar is the Tour Down Under. Mm -hmm. Cycling race, like the Tour de France, but in Adelaide. Absolutely. For those who don't know um, globally, it is a big event at the start of every year, although probably not so- Not lately. Not lately, unfortunately, as we know, it's, it's been impacted, but it is. For years and years, it has been a really big event, a lot of tourism, a lot of sponsorship, and it's, a, it's an opportunity where- the state of South Australia, and certainly not just metro, but the country areas and the regions around really get highlighted by cyclists coming from overseas and doing this road race through the uh, pristine countryside of South Australia in some hot conditions, but a really nice time of the year. It's an event conceived of, created by, and for many years operated by a man by the name of Mike Turter, who was himself a champion cyclist. Correct. Here's the thing. A couple of years ago, an Adelaide PR and marketing guru by the name of Francine O'Connor made a comment on Facebook saying that she felt that Mr. Turter had unfairly taken credit for the TDU's creation from a man who had since passed away. Mm. She cast aspersions upon his role with the organisation, the way he operated it, the way he interacted with people, and she did this on her Facebook. Right. Mr. Turter sued for defamation, mm -hmm. saying that this had not only, you know, unfairly maligned his reputation, but affected his ability to renew his contract to keep operating the tour down under. And so the whole thing ended up in court. Right. Part of the question that the court had to grapple with was, is publication on a Facebook site like this something that you can be held liable for? Sure. The answer was, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Turter was defamed 
because he did create the TDU. He had the proof that he'd created the TDU. He effectively had the napkin on which he, you know, the cocktail napkin on which he'd written the original yeah, idea. You know, it was yeah, that level sure. of detail. As a result, Ms. O'Connor had to pay out $300,000 damages. Yeah. That's the way it operates. That's that's the thing. And what people don't understand is that publication has consequences. Yeah. You know, we hear about the Googles and the Facebooks of the world saying, well, we're just a platform. We're not a publisher. You can be sued for what you say mm. on social media. You don't have to be a journalist fitting a definition in the Broadcasting Services Act of 1992 to be liable for what you say online. You just have to have behaved like a Muppet online and be called for it. And it's interesting. And the reason I guess we wanted to bring that up and touch on that and highlight that is a it is the use of social media in a world that is very much evolved from when you first started, as we, we talked about. It's also the fact that you don't have to... There are a lot of people out there who utilize these platforms, whether it's the Facebooks, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it might be, who like to promote their, um, I guess, opinions and therefore what they class as newsworthy media, and they say they're doing it under that, there are there are restrictions and there are consequences if you go outside of that, whether you are a legitimate journalist within an industry or like to broadcast in some sense. So it's, I guess, a bit of a, a PSA. Be mindful what you do and don't put out there in the platforms you use because whether you sit within this industry or on the periphery like myself, there are certainly consequences and there are rules around that. And social media has played a very different perspective around that just in your time. As you said, you made a statement to me. You were hot off the old press. Yeah, when I first did work experience, yeah. Hot off the press and just the very start of this new internet thing where news was starting to go online before that. April 2001, I actually edited the first edition of the Tizers website because I was the only person in the building late at night that knew how to use the internet. Right. There you go. So, you were legitimately at the turn, the changing of the guard between old press, new online. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right there. I mean, I remember using Twitter to cover a big siege in Adelaide. Right. You know, a gunman holding people hostage. I was live tweeting the events as they were going, looking at things, making sure, okay, I don't want to put up that photo because that shows exactly where the police are positioned. That could be dangerous. But I will use this photo or I will say this or whatever. So, live coverage in a text format when there were no news cameras anywhere because I was fortunately inside the cordon. Yeah, there you go. And that's another piece around that where you have the ability to utilise it for the right reason, but you have to choose discretion on what you do and don't post in that sense. And I would love to get to a point where we don't have to use the word legitimate journalist anymore, Mm. card-carrying journalist. And that takes me back to Peter Grest, the University of Queensland, and this academic paper about redefining journalism. So, we're finally going to get the new definition, sure. You kept us waiting for two episodes. That's my job, but okay. So, the new def- the definition he's saying it should evolve to. So, he says that definitions of journalist and journalism should fall into four categories called the four Ps. Okay. So, instead of the five Ws, who, what, why, where, and yes. when, you now go to the four Ps. The person, mm-hmm. the product, the purpose- and the process. Right. The person defined by an individual's employment, training, or source of income. Okay. Makes sense. The product focusing on the output of a journalist, such as a news story, documentary, or feature article that has the character of news or current affairs. Mm-hmm. That comes directly across from the Broadcasting sure. Act of 92. Yes. The purpose, which considers the democratic role that journalism plays, often focusing on its public interest function. Okay. Not just garbage not just rats and mice, Mm -hmm. something that speaks to the public interest and the need for democracy. 
The Process, which considers journalism as a way of gathering, handling, and presenting interest in line with recognized professional standards. Okay. Again, under this four Ps, I very much count. Mm. Yeah, if we tick it off, I work for an employer in my daily job. I put out things that have the character of news and current affairs. My purpose is focusing on the public interest in understanding what goes on in the courts. And my process is governed by the MEAA, the TISA, by the Australian Press Council, by the people that oversee radio, things like that. So do you. Mm. You fill at least three of those four categories. I mean, you could argue that this is a form of employment doing this show. So, I'd say that you're part of it too. <laughs> well, show that to the Nova Network, just waiting for the new contract to come back in, of course. No, all jokes aside, absolutely, I get it. That, that does make sense. And it says, while an appropriate definition may have elements of many or all of the above approaches, a principle of focus on the last of those, the process of journalism, is both legally workable and appropriate in a modern digital environment. Yeah. The reason that Mr. Grest is saying that is that consequence piece, that idea that if you're going to be a Julian Assange wannabe who Mm -hmm. dubs yourself a journalist, comes into court, sits down next to me and writes everything regardless of suppression orders or consideration for victims or anything else, you are not adhering to professional standards. You have no standard to bear. You cannot have the protection of a journalist in a legal sense, be mm. that in terms of qualified privilege from lawsuit, in terms of Whistleblower Act, in terms of any of the things that do and don't protect a journalist. And I think that makes sense. You know, journalism is a particular job. I'm not saying everyone goes out and needs to do a journalism degree. Mm. Obviously, you don't have one and you have an award. <laughs> there are lots of people that I know in the industry that don't have degrees. The degree doesn't mean anything. It's about being prepared to do the job for the public interest and suffer the consequences when you get it wrong. Yeah. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. I learned that in the NEMA case. I screwed up. Yeah. The screw-ups that I made led to consequences. I learned lessons from those consequences, things like pumping the brakes, Mm -hmm. things like only entitled to an informed opinion. The journalist that I am was formed very much by those experiences in NEMA. And I look at these four Ps and I just go, yeah, those are the lessons I've learned, really neatly categorized. Well, I'm glad you say that because that was going to be my question. I was going to ask you, based on the 1992 original definition- this new proposed evolution of the definition, changing it from the, you know, the five Ws, if you like, to the four Ps, looking at that from a lens of something like anema and your experience through almost a quarter of a century, getting there closely, 24 Thanks. years of journalism, does that sit well with where you think you were at the time and where you perhaps are now? It's where I should have been at the time. Sure. It's where I like to think I am now. I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with that and some people will agree with it. It's where I try to be. Mm. I don't think I could ever say that I do this job perfectly or I do this job right, but I'm trying. Yeah. And I'm trying with an understanding, even if I didn't have the definition for it a minute ago, of these four Ps. Yeah, right. Uh, You and I have talked a lot about purpose-driven living. Mm -hmm. It's very much a definition of purpose-driven living with the acceptance of the responsibility that comes with it. And I think that's the biggest part of it for me, accepting that- If you screw up, there will be consequences, not just for you personally, but for the people you're writing about. Yeah, it's a a good point. And I think knowing you as I do and having seen, you know, some of the journey over, certainly not the whole 24 years, but certainly some of the back end of that, 
I understand how uh, seriously, I guess, and uh, important that understanding of the taking the consequences piece is to you. I know that it's a big consideration before you take an action. I've also seen, even in the time I've known you, where there has been some stuff that's come back where you've had to look at it and go, actually, I probably got that wrong and I'm getting a wrap over the knuckles right now and actually, you know what? I need to take my licks because I actually probably deserve on on the merit of what's come up. You're not you're not infallible. None of us are. I think it's commendable that you recognize that and still have an adherence or a want of an adherence to something of that nature. The extension of this for me, uh, as we, we sort of wind this one down, is we do want to move forward. And there's been a reason we've done this and talked about that crossover of journalism and justice. And that becomes the fact that it's not just your ethical, moral and experience that sometimes you're beholden to. It is a professionalism. There is also some really clearly defined rules. And you mentioned one before that we want to touch on is suppression orders. Just really briefly, talk to me about how important they are and what that does to your role. So a suppression order is very simply the court having the ability to say, you can say this, but you can't say that. It can be as simple as keeping a document suppressed. It can be splitting infinitives and stopping certain words, terms, or phrases. It's how the court controls the flow of information from the courtroom to the public in order to protect the proper administration of justice. And with that really brief definition, because I know there is so much more and so many more elements to that, we will continue to unpack that and more of how journalism and justice go together, or do they, on our next episode. Until we get there, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the broadcast either on 5AA or you've heard the episodes via the podcast on either iTunes and Spotify. Uh, we would really, obviously, love for you to race over to those platforms, rate, review, give us at five stars, all that stuff. We'd also love for you to, obviously, give us your feedback, and you can do that at Just Lawful Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Just Lawful Pod on Twitter, or, as always, at Sean Fuster on Facebook and Twitter to follow Sean and his work with the advertisement Adelaide's True Crime. And until our next time, enjoy our work, but don't become our work, and we'll speak to you on the next episode of Just Lawful.